Welcome to this presentation of the First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, we'll grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and in case you use one of your our pew Bibles, uh, you can find that on page 858. While you're finding your place, I'll, I'll ask you briefly, have you ever experienced the fear of having a missing child? Have you ever experienced the fear of having a missing child, whether your own or maybe another kid that you are responsible for at a given point in time? Personally, if you know my family, uh, then you know with four children, it seems like someone is always missing. And uh, my personal opinion is if someone does happen to take one of them, they're probably going to end up bringing them back. So it's not really a big deal. But to this day, I still remember the day that my sister got lost at the Houston Museum of Natural Science. Uh, we had uh, been there for the, for the full day, uh, and she wandered off at one point after our family had split up. And so mom thought she was with dad, dad thought she was with mom, and nobody thought anything of it until we came back together again later in the day and she wasn't there. So fortunately, uh, a kind person found her, took her to the front desk, and so we were able to get her back without incident. But uh, I will never forget uh, that day. I was only five or six at the time, and I don't think I remember anything else about that day, but I will never forget Carly being lost because the look of sheer panic on my parents' faces is burned into my memory. I'm just always going to remember that. It's no small thing to lose a kid. Well, this seems like an odd way to start a sermon. I say all this because a similar incident uh, has particular significance for our understanding as we continue through Luke's gospel account. And so this morning, we are going to read the story of the missing Jesus. So we're in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 45, or 41. Luke 2, 41. It says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So as we pick the story back up here in verse 41, Luke tells us, uh, he begins by telling us that every year Joseph and Mary traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover. Uh, we mentioned briefly last week that Passover is the celebration of how God delivered his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt by executing judgment against the Egyptians and passing over the Israelites who applied the sacrificial blood to their homes. The celebration of Passover was an annual reminder of God's redemption of his people. And in practice, Passover was combined with the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, and the Feast of First Fruits into one uh, big week-long festival. Uh, and the timing of each of these feasts will be significant later on in the story. Now, according to the law, everyone who was able was expected to go to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival, though many people didn't do that. So again, Luke is highlighting Joseph and Mary's devotion 
to the Lord. It would have been a a semi-long journey for them to make the trip, but every year they went to Jerusalem to to, um, acknowledge and, and celebrate the Feast of Passover as the law instructed them to do. Now in verse 42, we fast forward 12 years in the story. Mary and Joseph take Jesus to to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover like they always do. But on this particular occasion, when the festival is over and it's time for everyone to go home, Jesus intentionally stays behind. He stays in Jerusalem. Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph don't realize that Jesus isn't with them because they just assume that he's in the group traveling back to Nazareth. Now, in our day of of so-called helicopter parenting, Uh, This might seem rather outrageous to us at first glance. How can you possibly not know that your kid is not with you? Uh, But the reality is that Mary and Joseph's assumption would not have been abnormal. Uh, People in the ancient world were much more communal uh, than we are in our our very uh, individualistic society today. Child-rearing was considered a village effort. Everybody had a role to play. And beyond that, because traveling long distances Uh, could be dangerous in the ancient world. Most people would travel in groups in order to have safety in numbers. And so since there was a caravan of people from Nazareth making the journey to Jerusalem and back, Mary and Joseph could reasonably assume that Jesus was somewhere in the group traveling, either with friends or with relatives. So they travel for a full day, which is probably 15 to 20 miles, Uh, but in the evening Jesus doesn't turn up. And so Mary and Joseph begin to ask around, again among their their friends and their relatives, and they find that nobody has seen Jesus all day. And they realize that Jesus isn't with them at all, and that he must still be back in Jerusalem. And so the first thing the next morning, Mary and Joseph rush back to Jerusalem to find Jesus. And I, I enjoyed imagining their conversation in my head this week. Uh, we, we've lost our son. We've lost our son. He's probably trapped on the back of someone's camel with duct tape over his mouth. All right, we've lost our son. Not only that, we've lost the Messiah. How do you lose the Messiah? Out of all the people in human history, God entrusted him to us, and now we've lost the Messiah. What does this mean? What if we can't find him? How do you lose the Messiah? And so Mary and Joseph frantically search to find Jesus, and we'll see what happens as we pick up again, beginning in verse 46. It says, After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And so picking up in verse 46, we see that after three days, which probably means on the third day, Mary and Joseph finally find Jesus in the temple. But contrary to what they might have expected, Jesus isn't walking around lost and looking for help. Instead, he's sitting among the teachers of the law, listening and asking questions. Now, just for kicks, in case you haven't seen it before, we have uh, on our screen a map, a reconstruction of the temple in the first century based on archaeological evidence and historical records of the temple's dimensions. And there's lots of details that we could bring out about that, but the little circle there that I've put on the map uh, is the location where members of, of the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel, would come out to teach the people. And so while nobody knows for certain that that is where the story happens, that's the most likely uh, location for the story in that general area of the temple. But at any rate, Mary and Joseph find Jesus in the temple, engaging with the teachers of the law. 
Uh, and there are a couple of details here that are worth highlighting in order to fully appreciate the situation. First of all, Luke tells us that Jesus was sitting. And this is important because sitting was a position of authority in the ancient world. I see I am standing up here this morning, but in the ancient world, teachers would sit as they taught. And so when we see Jesus is sitting among the teachers, Luke intends for us to understand that he has earned a place as an equal among the, the, uh, people who have devoted their lives uh, to studying the scriptures for, for perhaps 50 years or more. He has earned a seat at the table. This is utterly remarkable, particularly in a culture where, where children were intended to be seen but not be heard. As we see, in, in just over 48 hours, Jesus has made quite an impression. He's asking deep questions and giving insightful answers of his own in this give-and-take conversation with the teachers of Israel. And Luke says that everyone who is listening to him was amazed at his understanding. And now, now, we've been told several times up to this point in the story that Jesus is not going to be just an ordinary person. But now here we see it for the very first time. Right? This is no ordinary kid. So last week in verse 40, we saw that once Mary and Joseph and Jesus returned to Nazareth, Jesus was described as being filled with wisdom, a wisdom well beyond his age. And as Luke is showing us how all of the Old Testament promises are being fulfilled in Jesus, this shouldn't be surprising to us. Right? Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, speak about the coming Messiah and his supernatural knowledge and insight. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so here in this story, we see this being true of Jesus. Again, as he gives and takes with the leading theologians in Judaism of his day, and all of this as a 12-year-old kid. However... All things considered, Mary and Joseph aren't exactly happy to, to see him here. And so we'll see how they respond as we pick up one last time in verse 48. It says, And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother, his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So when, when Mary and Joseph find Jesus sitting among the teachers of the law, Luke says that they were astonished. Not amazed, but astonished, or, or perhaps overwhelmed. And so this word is probably a combination of relief, with a little bit of anger, and probably under the circumstances, a little bit of, of impressed. Right? This is a, a, the kind of situation where they can't decide whether to hug him, or spank him, or ask him for his autograph. It is just, it's just a big combination of, of, of competing emotions and thoughts. And, and in the second half of verse 48, Mary walks up and says, Son, why have you treated us so? 
Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Basically, she says, what are you doing? We've been worried sick about you. What, what are you doing? And very matter-of-factly, Jesus responds by asking them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? There are three elements of Jesus' response here that we should focus on briefly. So first of all, you'll notice, if you look, uh, that there's a play on the word father here. Right? Mary refers to Joseph as Jesus' father. Then Jesus responds to her and refers to God as his father. And we should understand this is not a rejection of Joseph or, or his rightful parental authority over Jesus, as much as it's an affirmation and, re and reminder of God's higher authority over his life. Right? Jesus is their son, but he's not just their son. Right? Jesus has been born with a specific purpose, and now he needs to begin pursuing that specific purpose. And this leads us directly to the second thing, which is that Jesus stating that he must be in his father's house indicates a, a sense of necessity. Right? This has to happen. And so in other words, at this moment, Jesus is exactly where he is supposed to be, and he is doing exactly what he is supposed to be doing. And what we translate as, as in my father's house is really interesting. There's not actually an object in the phrase that, that can be identified, and so translators have to supply various possibilities to try to get at the meaning of what Jesus is saying. And so depending on your translation, you may have a, a footnote uh, that says that it could also be translated the things of my father, or my father's house, or even my father's business. But however you render it, the point is that Jesus is on God's agenda. Jesus is concerned about the things that God is concerned about. Right? He's focused on God's mission, and that is what drives everything he does. And Jesus seems to think that Mary and Joseph should understand this about him, right? He asked, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I would be here? Luke tells us in verse 50 that they have no idea what he's talking about. They don't understand what he's saying. And so we see that they know who Jesus is, at least in theory, but whatever preconceived notions they had about what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, this particular episode does not fit in it. This doesn't fit the narrative as they understand it. They're confused and, frankly, a little put out about it. But from there, we see in verse 51 that Jesus goes back to Nazareth with Joseph and Mary and is submissive to them. He is an obedient child. And this is not the point of the passage, but it struck me this week, and I think it's too important not to touch on, at least uh, briefly, just for a moment. Think about this. Jesus, who was perfect, had parents who were not. Jesus, who was sinless, had parents who were not. Right? Sometimes Mary and Joseph made wrong decisions. Sometimes they probably didn't let Jesus do things that he wanted to do. Sometimes they probably made Jesus do things that he didn't want to do. Right? But despite this moral imbalance, Jesus submitted himself to them as his proper God-given human authority. And this is such an increasingly important thing for us to recognize today as, as the concept of authority crumbles in our society. Christians should recognize and honor proper authority. So children, obey your parents. I'm not just saying this for me. 
Same for all parents. Children, obey your parents. They don't, they don't always get it right. I'm willing to acknowledge that. But unless they instruct you to do something that is explicitly against God's revealed will, then it pleases the Lord for you to honor them in obedience. Employees, do good work for your employers. You may know more about the job than they do. Sometimes they may be a jerk about it. Right? But unless they instruct you to do something that explicitly violates God's revealed will, it, God is, is pleased when we honor their leadership. And the same thing is true across the board, whether it's churches and pastors or citizens and government leaders or, or whatever. There is no such thing as perfect human authority in this world. And yet, God is pleased to accomplish his plans for people, particularly his people, through imperfect authority. And so in, in every way, unless we find ourselves to be instructed to do something that explicitly violates God's revealed will, we honor God by honoring and obeying human authority. If Jesus could submit himself to imperfect human authority, how much more should we? But in any case, Luke ends the passage by telling us that Mary treasured up all of these things in her heart. As she continues walking this path of being the mother of the Messiah, this episode is just another one of those major moments uh, that she is, is going to remember forever. She is never going to forget this. And in verse 52, we see that Jesus continued to grow healthy physically, spiritually, socially, having favor with both God and with people. And this sets the stage for the second act of the story, which will begin as we move into chapter 3 when we come back next week. Right, but in our passage this morning, we have the story of the missing Jesus. And part of what makes this story so interesting is that out of everything that happened in Jesus' childhood and even his young adulthood, this is the only thing that is recorded in the Bible. Right, this story from, from when Jesus is 12 is the only thing we know about Jesus' early life, and Luke is the only one who includes it. And so it's possible that the other disciples who were writing from their own personal experience didn't include this story in their gospel accounts because they weren't there for it. But because Luke has been researching and interviewing, and, and who knows, possibly even having the opportunity to meet with Mary at some point, he has included it for his purposes. And such a unique passage raises the question of why Luke would find it so important to include here. Well, in context, uh, this passage is connected to a larger section that has been preparing us uh, to understand what's going to happen through the rest of the story. And so up to this point, other people have been revealing things, aspects about who Jesus will be and what he will do, whether it's an angel or uh, Zechariah or Mary or Simeon and, and Anna, as we saw last week. But here, for the first time, Jesus speaks for himself. And he reveals something about himself. And what he reveals is that he is going to be someone who is wholeheartedly devoted and committed to fulfilling God's plans. And simply put, Jesus' statement in verse 49 is a declaration that he is about his father's business. Right? He's not on anyone else's agenda. He's not particularly concerned with what anybody else thinks. His sole purpose in life is going to be to do what God wants him to do. And this is a theme that's going to, to take us throughout the rest of the story. Sometimes other people are going to appreciate this about Jesus, 
sometimes is going to make other people very angry at Jesus. And ultimately, uh, it's going to bring the story to its climax as Jesus' commitment to his Father's will brings him into conflict uh, with other people who do not share that commitment. Uh, But right here at the beginning, Luke reveals to us that as God's Son, Jesus is about his Father's business. And the same thing should be true for us. You see, while only Jesus is the Son of God by his very nature, uh, the good news is that we can become children of God by adoption through faith in Jesus. Uh, While we are naturally enemies who are separated by God because of our sin, the good news of the gospel is that by repenting of our sin and trusting in what Jesus has done to save us, we can be forgiven of our sin and brought into the community of God's people, his family. And from that point, we should be about our Father's business. We should be about finding and following God's plan for our lives. The second half of the Great Commission calls us to to be disciples who, who learn and who teach others to follow everything that Jesus has commanded. This should be our goal in life, just as Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says, for the the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. As believers, we should live to bring glory to God and to fulfill his purposes and his plans in the world. The world is is going to give us any number of distractions, any number of of other opportunities to to devote our lives to different things. But as believers, our goal should be to bring glory to God. And we understand how to do that by looking to his word and seeking to obey it in all things. So this morning, let's renew our commitment to being about our Father's business, both as individuals and as a church. Let's pray together.